Everyone told us and told us marriage is hard work. Not for me and Nick. As you all know, my wife, Amy Elliott Dunn, disappeared three days ago. I had nothing to do with the disappearance of my wife. I have nothing to hide. Sammy got friends we can talk to? No, not really. You don't know if she has friends, you don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. He's being a good guy, so everybody can see him being a good guy. Well, you really don't like him, do you? All I'm trying to do is be nice to the people who are volunteering to help find Amy. I will practice believing my husband loves me, but I could be wrong. On the morning of his fifth wedding anniversary, one-time New York City writer turned small-town Midwest bar owner Nick Dunn comes home to find a suspicious scene and a missing wife, who in short order is presumed to be dead. A media frenzy begins, Nick is ultimately suspected of the crime, and that's probably all we should say about the plot of Gone Girl, even though most people listening have probably seen the movie, read the best-selling book, or both. Based on what's filling up my Twitter and Facebook feeds recently, there are a lot of places we could start our conversation, Josh. Is the movie misogynistic? A curious question, perhaps, considering both the screenplay and book were written by a woman, the same woman, Gillian Flynn. How does the movie compare to Flynn's book? which we could dive into if, you know, either of us had read the book or help. if, you know, I cared in the slightest how the movie compares to the book. How is Ben Affleck's performance as Nick and Roseman and Pike's turn as his wife, Amy? Not to mention the ensemble of less familiar faces, such as Chicago actress Carrie Coon, who plays Affleck's twin sister, and the wonderful Kim Dickey, who plays the wonderfully named Detective Rhonda Boney. Apparently, in a bit of life-imitating-art magic that not even director David Fincher could have orchestrated, we could also devote time to discussing the make and model of Affleck's junk. These are some times we live in, Josh. Sometimes, indeed. Instead, we're going to start with an email that came to us about a week before Gong Girl opened from a longtime listener, Scott Mobley, in Las Vegas. I have long held that while he is in no way a hack or a bad filmmaker, David Fincher is highly overrated in the film community. I don't think that Fincher is bad by any means. I have liked several of his films and actually think that maybe two of them are great. Overall, however, it seems to me that we look forward with great anticipation to films that I often find myself disappointed with. What bothers me is that he is, by some, held in the same regard as P.T. Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, and other contemporaries when I don't think that the work truly deserves that praise. Let's take a look at the films. Alien 3. Just a bad film, Scott says. 7. I know people love it, but the plot holes are too much for me to handle. Stylistically great, but the payoff just doesn't work. I know it is loved, so I will say this one is good at best. The Game, less than memorable. Fight Club, maybe not great, but a very good film. I will give him this one. Panic Room, meh. Zodiac, this is one of the great ones. Nearly perfect film. Benjamin Button, just horrible. Not Fincher's fault because the screenplay is awful, but still a bad film. The Social Network, Great film number two, nearly a masterpiece. And The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, no opinion, as I haven't seen it. I like the original too much, Scott says. And now we wait with anticipation for Gone Girl. I will watch with an open mind, but I'm just not as excited as everyone else. Even if you can claim that Seven is a great film, that's only three out of nine. Other filmmakers have better track records and don't get a tenth of the respect that Fincher does. Josh, we could take those movies and Scott's comments on them one by one. And even if I agreed with Scott, I'm not so sure a one masterpiece per three movie batting average isn't pretty amazing. I liked his email, though, because it honestly never occurred to me that questioning Fincher's greatness, or at least his very goodness, yes, on the same level with PTA and Tarantino, was a thing. But I'm not so interested in arousing an is Fincher overrated referendum as I am interested in learning whether or not Gone Girl offered you 
any greater insight into what makes him and his movies tick? And if so, did that insight significantly alter your perception of Fincher as a director for better or for worse? Well, we can start a little bit with the referendum, and I might as well put my cards on the table here in that I understand where Scott's coming from a little bit. I would never call Fincher overrated, but I would say that I don't rate him as highly as most people do, or at least as most cinephiles do, and general audiences too. I mean, he's a popular filmmaker. Um, so I think that for me, the thing with Fincher, when you look at the the worldview of his movies, they're bitter, they're cynical, mm-hmm. they're detached. They're often, aside from the aesthetic impressiveness and the craft of them, can be hard to watch. And for me, I tend to appreciate those more in the hands of masters on the level of, say, Hitchcock or Kubrick, who you could also <laughs> describe in those ways. Okay. And I don't quite put Fincher in that category. So those to are have tough him comparisons exactly. for and, any and So that's why I'm saying I just don't rate him. As highly as some people, not that I feel he's overrated. Okay. Fin- Fincher's stuff, um, and increasingly, I think, and here's where we'll get to Gone Girl. For me, some of his films, the majority of his films have, maybe you'd call it a men's health magazine vibe. They're a little macho, a little masculine in a way that doesn't always intrigue me as much as it does other people. I think it really did towards the beginning of his career, especially something like Fight Club, which I think is his best film. Um, But I think that that vibe that I'm sensing has become less interesting as his career has gone on, and it hasn't necessarily become more heightened, but it's still there in the background. And I think it's very much in the background of Gone Girl, not disastrously so. I would never use the word misogynistic for this film at all, but I can see where people are coming from who say that. Um, so I don't think that's, that's good because I can't. Okay, but I'm well, sure we'll that's get to that's that. something we can get to, and uh, we should probably talk as well about the structure of this review because that's something I don't think we can get to until we get into spoilers. Mm-hmm. At least I don't feel like I can. So maybe towards the second half of this review, we'll open things up and go there. We will. But for now, let me back all the way up to the point where I think he is an extremely talented filmmaker, always of interest, always worth watching and watching very closely. And Gone Girl deserves that sort of attention because it is this crafty, nasty little viper's nest of unreliable narrators. And there are many levels of unreliable narrators. And it does take Fincher's, maybe not bitter, but just detached brittleness to expose those narrators Mm -hmm. for who they really are. He does have the knack for doing that, and he does it well in Gone Girl. Well, Josh, while it's clear you said you're not someone who is a hater of David Fincher's work, I definitely appreciate him a lot more than you do, and we even differ on the films of his we like the most. So we're in stark contrast with each other on his films overall. And even though it's clear you did like Gone Girl, I loved Gone Girl. And maybe the highest compliment I can pay it is that I walked out of the theater viewing the world differently. And I don't mean that it completely altered my beliefs about anything, that it taught me something I never knew or thought about before. I mean that for about 24 hours, I felt a bit like I was having an out-of-body experience when Hmm. I walked out of the cinema. From the very beginning, with those fleeting opening credits, the names coming up just for that split second and then quickly fading away, 
barely allowing you to register what they said. You know that truth here, you know that meaning just right from the very beginning is going to be The images, elusive. too. It's the images scenes too. of this town, and I noticed that right away. Mm-hmm. Normally we get those and the camera lingers for maybe you don't eight get seconds. Your bearings. It's like a second and a half. Yeah, and not only that, the fades in and out of flashbacks, the narration that you mentioned, the shifting points of view, and the way the points of view and the perspective folds in on itself, it never allows you to get a firm grip. The score by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, who he's obviously collaborated with before. It's at times almost imperceptible, but it bangs and clangs and it hums throughout the entire movie, almost disorienting and haunting you. It was more than just watching a movie. I felt like it was truly a loaded sensory experience. And as I was walking out of the theater and getting into my car, I was looking at everyone around me and suspecting them of not being who they really were presenting themselves to be. I was seeing everything around me as a construct, as part of somebody else's narrative, and I wasn't sure who. And I then started thinking about the role I was playing as I was walking to my car and how other people were viewing me. Beyond that, the rest of the day, I saw it with my wife. I saw it with our producer, Sam Van Halgren. And I was thinking about when I was in conversation with both of them, individually or collectively, I started thinking about as I was talking, what words I was using what choices I was making, what words I could have used or maybe should have used, and what those choices said about me in the moment as a person. I really was thinking about all of this because Gone Girl just cast a spell over me. Yeah, and you're tapping right into what I do think was its most incisive element, was this idea of the roles we play and especially how our sense of public image Mm -hmm. has seeped into our private lives and how we conduct ourselves. And this movie, especially once the media firestorm around the Nick Dunn character begins to erupt and we see how everyone is watching him so closely. So during one of the early scenes when he goes to a rally of volunteers to search for his wife, people are asking, why is he smiling? Why isn't he smiling? Mm -hmm. Does he look tired? Does he look not tired enough? These sorts of things. And then soon he picks up on the game and starts to know how to play that game. Yeah, he starts to manipulate it a little bit. And and so I like that very much, but it also gets personal, which is more what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. how we relate with people and how do we take this idea of a public image and use it in our everyday lives? Because this isn't something that just starts in the film when Nick comes under suspicion. It's early on in the scenes where we see Nick and Amy first getting to know each other and falling in love. And then getting after they get married, they have conversations like, we're not going to be that That couple. couple, They're already holding themselves to some kind of ideal. Exactly. And what that means is that they're aware of how people appear, how they want to appear. And that's very separate from who they want to be. Mm -hmm. And this movie bores in on that and makes us all realize how we do that as well. Mm -hmm. No matter, I mean, we may not ever stand in front of cameras on CNN and be grilled by someone having been trained by Tyler Perry in the back room as his lawyer. I love that meta moment. Tyler Perry directing Ben Affleck on how to act (laughs) on CNN. We're not going to be in that situation, but we do find ourselves putting on different images, different personas and how false they are, how untrue they might be, that's something uncomfortable that Gone Girl makes you question and Mm -hmm. face. And to put that in just slightly different terms and to get back to the question of Fincher and his body of work, like with Eraserhead a few weeks ago, another spellbinding movie that clued me into something about the director David Lynch that had always evaded me, that was his focus on family. Gone Girl, I think, is really fundamentally 
It's about all the things we've talked about so far, but it's also about something that runs throughout all of Fincher's films, and that's control. The struggle to assert your own will, to determine your own identity and your own path, despite your circumstances, your basic nature, or the will of others, or all three of those things. It's in every one of the movies Scott listed at the top of this discussion, but especially so, I'd note the game, Fight Club, The Social Network, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. In Gone Girl, I think what clued me into it is the struggle is just heightened. As you said, it's not something that just pops up every now and again. It permeates every frame of this film. It's heightened. It's taken to an extreme where not just an individual identity or a couple individual identities, but our collective American identity is fractured. Sure. Well, that's where the recession angle comes in as well. The Mm -hmm. fact that this main couple, they've had to restructure their personas and their identities because they've both lost their jobs. Mentioning control, we're back to Kubrick again a little bit, right? And when I place this film in Fincher's body of work, I also get this sense, which is true of Kubrick too, that we frequently are watching people that we wouldn't want to spend any time with. Mm -hmm. And we're really getting a close picture of them. And so you get this idea. I mean, look at Gone Girl setting next to some of his other films. It's full of narcissists, right? So we have the social network there very much. And these are people who are enthralled with a consumer society, Mm -hmm. the American aspect you're talking about. And I think you see that in Fight Club, obviously. And this society is built to serve as a mask for real psychological horror. Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. So it's kind of a through line uh, underlying all of these. And again, I just have to pause because I do really like the movie so much and wonder where did the curious case of Benjamin Button come from? Well, you know, it came from, of course, Eric Roth's script. And one fascinating thing about that movie, to me at least, is seeing those two sensibilities meld into something that's really both mournful and hopeful. Here, we're back to pure Fincher. And of course... Probably safe to say most cinephiles wonder where Curious Case of Benjamin Button came from as a bad thing. Generally, it's meant to deride the film. Generally. You're actually saying it as, as a good thing because you do really love that film. Over on Letterboxd, I just posted actually a poem that I think really taps into what I think this movie's about. And it was kind of serendipitous that I came across it. It's an Edgar Allan Poe poem. But that did provoke, actually, a pretty healthy discussion over at Letterboxd already in some of the comments. And one of the writers there, the name is the handle at Letterboxd is T. McGuigs, asked at one point, was this more than a really well-made piece of pulp? And I've seen this kind of discussion going Mm -hmm. on again. I still haven't read any reviews, and I wish I had, actually, before this discussion. I just didn't have the time. But I've seen it in my timelines, and everyone's talking about it. I saw something on IndieWire about when Fincher makes films versus movies, which I'm sure the article has something smart to say. It just seems so incredibly reductive to me. But on Letterboxd, that writer said, in other words, was this satirizing, trashy, sensational media coverage, or was it making any real points about marriage or relationships or something else? I think it was about the latter, but not even going into that, my response was, since when is satirizing the media not a real thing? Mm -hmm. When is that not a real point? Fincher and Flynn, they indict the media, and in turn, us as audience members, Not by exaggerating the media coverage and taking easy shots the way a lot of very good satires and really bad satires might, but they do it, Josh, by getting it dead, solid, perfect. The way this frenzy unfolds is precisely how we've seen countless other scandals and salacious stories unfold in the media. And I think that's why it's so potent. We recognize the truth of it, the compulsion by the media, but not just the media, by us to take something dark and complex 
and twisted and ultimately unknowable because even the people directly involved in it can't sort out all the facts of what's going on. And we try to define it in the most convenient, digestible narrative terms possible. And the way Fincher makes us see how easy it is to juxtapose, say, an insinuation about someone's character and their motives, their possible motives, with a photo or a little piece of video, just a few seconds. And we believe it. And even if you know it's not true based on we as audience members are privy to facts that the people watching at home in this film aren't privy to, you still in certain moments start to question what you're seeing and Mm -hmm. whether or not, okay, wait a second, maybe that media person's right because I just saw that look on his face. And you start dissecting everything for meaning. And at some point you have to convince yourself that the conclusions being drawn aren't true simply because they appear to be true. And the way they get that so right, I mean, other films have maybe come close. I don't know if many have gotten it just as perfect as Gone Girl has. Well, and it's the economy of how they get it. And here's where I really admire Fincher is the control he does have over his craft and the way the movie can do this with such economy. Everything you're talking about can be summed up in a little throwaway moment during the candlelight vigil where Nick is up giving a speech and we cut to two young women in the audience who are supposed to be there supporting him in there for the search. One of them says, he's so cute. He's so cute. And the other one just looks and goes, ew, he's so creepy. And it's right there, right? They're just going to reduce it to their own personal needs and how they're viewing this tragedy. And so, but just the fact that Fincher and Flynn, if she scripted that, uh, you know, get at that in such a brief moment. Mm -hmm. To go back briefly to your um, pulp idea and that question, I I think maybe what people are getting at here is um, the idea that Zodiac, which is generally considered his masterwork, I think Mm -hmm. that's fair to say, is in some sense a deconstruction of the whodunit genre, right? That just in the the way it takes apart process is about process, is about deflating the way we usually watch those movies. And I think that's probably why it is held in such high esteem, because it's doing something with the form and that appeals to us, Mm -hmm. right, As, as cinephiles. This is more of the well-oiled machine, and that's why I wouldn't be surprised. I haven't looked yet at what the box office was. Maybe I'm speaking in ignorance, and it bombed over the weekend. No, I wouldn't be surprised. I think I saw briefly that it was up there, but it was really close with the second-place film, which— I just remember from the title thinking it has no business being in the same (laughs) conversation with Gone Girl. Maybe we should look that up. Okay. Anyway. Well, basically, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a huge hit because it is at once satirizing and playing to those impulses in a way. And that's in the craft, too. I mean, this is a series of clues and red herrings laid out with intricacy, with precision in a way that pulls us along. So maybe that's where this question is coming from because this is more of an entertainment. Maybe that's the way to put yeah. it. It's more of an entertainment than Zodiac. It now, is. I, you know, I'm a genre fan, so I don't really yeah. get into the question of does that, that mean as, it's art or not. Yeah, I, I don't, that doesn't make it any not more or less worthy not at all. because it's a little more entertaining and a little more salacious or pulpy, however you want to describe it. If you've seen the movie already, you're listening to the podcast Stick around. We're going to have a little bit of a longer discussion here, or at least give ourselves the freedom to go into some spoiler territory if we want. And maybe we should go ahead and get into the handling of women in this film a little bit, because I actually learned a new term, Josh, preparing for this discussion. Okay. I had to look up a word. It's a word I had honestly, I'm embarrassed because I have a pretty decent education and had never heard it before. And that word is misandrist. Hmm. misandrist it's the opposite of misogynist or misogynistic 
the opposite of women hating is men hating. Okay. I don't think that Gone Girl is misandrist. I do think that the movie is more complex than either of those terms allow for. But I do think fundamentally, and I have a hard time believing that anybody sees it differently, that this movie is a far greater indictment of men and the evil that men do, specifically that they do to women, than it is any kind of indictment of women. And I think that we should all agree that women and men are equally deserving of being portrayed as villains on screen, of doing terrible, reprehensible things. And those acts shouldn't be taken as representative of anything, of an entire gender or a race or sexual orientation. The characters in Gone Girl, almost all of them are, are bad. You sure. said that, are oh, yeah. quote-unquote yeah. bad. They're human. They're flawed. And I don't think it matters. It doesn't matter to me anyway that we can morally object to the actions of most of the characters in this film or that we wouldn't want to spend time with them or hang out with them or be related to them. What matters, all that matters in terms of this drama, of drama in general, is that we have some understanding of why the bad people do the bad things they do. All the best villains, in drama anyway, I don't know if I personally know any villains in real life, but in drama, the best villains, Josh, they don't see themselves as evil people doing evil things. Their actions to them are necessary and righteous no different than the quote-unquote good people. And I think that understanding is not just in Gone Girl. I think it drives the whole movie. So I think Gone Girl wants to be in between those positions you just laid out in terms of its view of men and women. Mm -hmm. I think it's really going for what the book left, the handful of people I talked to who read the book, it's going for this feeling. Boy, these were both despicable people. Mm -hmm. Once it's revealed who's pulling what, who's behind what, and where they're left at the end together is that you just wanted to leave them there together and get away from them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, that's how the book was received, the ending, from what I understand. The film, I think, wants to do that. I really do because it I do too. has scenes that are almost purposefully laid out to keep pulling us back and forth. Mm -hmm. So I see that structure and I see that care. Um, but there is still... And to me, it's that Men's Health magazine vibe that comes through in this film that I can't quite put my finger on except to say that sometimes in movies, it's not so much what they're saying or even what they're doing, but when a movie's eyes light up about a certain scene or a certain line that you think, there it is. That's where the movie, maybe despite the screenwriter's intention, but despite the actor's intention, despite the director's intention... Here's where the movie's excited or here's what the movie feels strongly about. And for me, by the end of this film, I felt like it was Team Nick. <laughs> and I use that phrase because it's one that Fincher has talked about. I believe it was in a film comment interview where early screenings, people were coming out insane. They were either Team Amy or Team Nick <laughs> and how he found that funny. And I do, too, because I could sense that the movie was not trying to position itself either way yet it's a reality in those reactions and in the ones apparently that you've seen on twitter and maybe elsewhere that people are coming out of it feeling strongly one way or the other so somehow in the alchemy of this film that focus on these two as flip sides of the same coin perhaps what irrespective of their gender mm -hmm. is off a little bit uh, and so to me i put this again in context of fincher's filmography where I feel like, though he has strong female characters, frequently started his career with Sigourney Weaver Without a doubt. in Alien 3, which was, you know, one of the strongest female characters in movie history. They're there. 
I feel like the only female character who owns her movie, however, is Jodie Foster in Panic Room. It's one of the reasons I like that film more than a lot of his or put it higher in his career. So I put that in context with what we have here. And I feel like there's something to this movie where Nick should have the right to just drink his beer and watch his sports and not be henpecked. There's that little line that Affleck has. It's kind of a throwaway, and I'm trying to think when it comes after. I think it's after Missy Pyle's news report. She's Nancy Grace, basically. She's Nancy Grace, and she gives a number of news reports. She's really good. She's She's great. As you talked about, just not overplaying it at all. Mm -hmm. He sees another one of her news reports and just sort of hisses, I'm so sick of being picked apart by women. Right. Okay? Now, again... There are other scenes which play the flip side of that. So you For see sure. the Rosamund Pike character yeah. get a moment like that. Yet when this movie ends, I got the impression that it was Nick being trapped by her in this extreme psychotic version of henpecking <laughs> where she in a way won. And we're supposed to at least some level sympathize with his predicament. And and that's where the, the tables are just tilted. Not not enough for me to even go anywhere near saying it's misogynistic, but just enough for me to say, okay, I think I know I think I know which unreliable narrator the movie feels a little closer to. Well it's such a complicated discussion because First of all, let me say that the only thing people should be that reductive about that they're using terminology like team whatever is with their favorite film spotting host. <laughs> team Josh or Team Adam, perfectly <laughs> acceptable. Anything else in life, no. Just don't do it. Just don't go there. But it's there. a reality that it's happening. I'm, I, I'm I know. addressing the reality it's that it's It's a reality happening. that this movie addresses is the reality and unfortunately really shouldn't be. I think there's no doubt. We haven't really spoiled anything yet. At the end of the yeah, film, we could have had this conversation. At the we end have? of the movie, there's one guy who does a whole lot of really bad things, but one thing he doesn't do is slit somebody's throat. <laughs> yeah, and I'm okay. not being that reductive about it either. Okay, but but I think with that you almost have to be because it's impossible to watch the film and not by the end of it in very basic black and white terms to not see one as more of a victim than the other. That's what you're getting at ultimately is that you have this guy at the end who we're sitting there at the table going, we really can't catch her for this we really can't put her in jail we are at the end of the film i think rooting for her to get her comeuppance but what i think fincher does to temper that is i disagree with you about the notion that at the end of the film we really feel for him to the point where we wish he could get out from underneath it or we want him to somehow succeed because the cynicism at the end of the film is that decision he makes, the apparent decision he makes to stay. And that's really maybe the darkest thing about the movie. It gets back to that whole conversation we're having about roles and narratives. At the end of the film, you really believe that, you know what, this guy is probably going to stay in this marriage. And for some very practical reasons, it might be because he's dead broke and she's got all the money. It might be because now they're going to have a baby and he wants to be a father and take that responsibility. But you know what I think it really is? I think it's because he realizes that playing that role, as much as there's a part of him that it repels and disgusts him, playing that role is ultimately easier than not playing any role at all. It's so much easier to go through life knowing what decisions you have to make, knowing what choices you have to make, how you have to dress, what you have to say, the motions, the movements, your gestures, when you know that you're acting, when you know that you're you're trying to fit some kind of version of yourself that 
someone might see as the best version of yourself, or it just might be the version of yourself that the world needs for you to exist in it. And ultimately, on a deeper level, that's easier. That's easier than the rest of us going through life, already trying to do that on some level, but really struggling with it being a little more complicated than that. This movie has just narrowed it down to that fundamental question of how you're going to go through life. And I think that decision he makes or doesn't allow himself to make to actually have the will to leave, that says something more about him than it does about her. Well, they're certainly both stuck in these adopted personas that they've taken on. They've become permanent in a sense now, right? Mm -hmm. There's no longer going to be a true him or a true her because they've agreed this is who they will now be in order to survive. Right. So I see that and that works. It it wasn't really a matter of me wanting him to succeed. I guess I wanted him to be as bad as her at the end. Mm-hmm. I, I, I saw that balance shift a little bit where, and not in a sense like, I wanted him to commit as bad of an act as she had committed so that the scales were even. Yeah, only just, one of them can do just that. This, so. Right, right. Yeah. So it's, I'm not being that literal about it. it it's more just a sensibility of where um, I wanted them to be more partners in this than they were, than okay. they were to me at the end of the film. Yeah, but, I can see that. And maybe, maybe this is where we can get into, maybe this plays into it. We haven't talked much about the acting at all. No. Um, and maybe this is something that Pike is doing better than Affleck is. Could that be part of my problem? I don't know. I think he's good here. I think he's used similarly in the way Terrence Malick used him in To the Wonder as this fixture of Americana. I mean, he does more acting. In there, he was sort of a model in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I thought that worked really well. And I didn't so much, but right. Uh, And here, I think Fincher is using his, obviously he's using his star persona as well as whatever acting talent he has. But he's not doing anything near what Pike is doing. I mean, this is, she gets the flashier role. She gets the Mm -hmm. more range, more notes to play, obviously. I mean, she plays just about every note you can imagine, and she gets the gonzo scenes. So I'm trying to set those aside, and, and I just felt like she had this commitment to the villainy that maybe if Affleck had had, had brought to the villainous things he did, which are different but still villainous, Mm -hmm. then I might have felt that balance be a little more equal at the end. Yeah, I didn't really have that sense. I felt like they were equals, and maybe it's because I find myself naturally thinking that the actor or actress who seems to have the fewer notes to hit, that doesn't mean their performance is any less challenging. In fact, it might make it more challenging. For sure. I think they're just both perfectly cast. I think that the casting director and Fincher, they just had the perfect eye for this movie because Pike is an actress who she comes off naturally as a little bit icy and she comes off as someone who seems a little bit detached and this movie exploits that completely. And then Affleck is a guy who his public persona, and this gets back to what the movie's mm-hmm. ultimately about, oh, yeah, right? yeah, it's I love about, the casting It's choice. about persona, it's about perception, it's about perception mattering more than reality. His persona is of someone who is smug. And there's that great line where Tyler Perry, the lawyer, says to him, I'm going to keep pelting you with gummy bears every time you yeah. say something <laughs> smug. I mean, that's that's Affleck's dilemma. Or him right? grimacing for that early photo in right. front of her missing persons yeah. poster. Yeah, right. So <laughs> he is someone who has to fight a certain smugness. Whether that's actually in him or our perception of him is really irrelevant. They're the same thing. And so that seemed like the perfect casting choice. But there is also something about him that just is divisive. It just rubs people the wrong way. There are those two women in the crowd who one thinks he's too cocky and arrogant, and the other one thinks, yeah, but he's 
really cute. You know, he just seems to rub some people the wrong way and he draws other people in. There is a certain charisma to him. So I felt like they cast that perfectly. I think they cast Neil Patrick Harris perfectly as well. Yeah. I think they were playing with his public persona, which, of course, is of a homosexual. We know that that is who he is, that he's not someone who's going to be Neil Patrick Harris is not going to be lusting after Rosamund Pike uh-huh. in real life. Uh-huh. And I think the fact that he stands in stark contrast to the macho-ness and the virility of Affleck and of the Nick character, there's a clear sense right away that his feelings and his attachment to Amy aren't really of a sexual nature. There's something else. There's, there's another type of psychology going on there that I don't think you attach to homosexuality, but it's not a macho type of masculinity that he reflects there. He stands in stark contrast to Affleck, and I think that was pretty inspired casting as well. Mr. Dunn. Mr. Collins. I know you. I saw you at the Volunteer Center. I wanted to help. Well, I hope you don't mind me coming by. I got your address from this letter that you wrote my wife. Amy and I believe in the lost art of letter writing. I always wondered why you kept in touch after everything. You were together for two years in boarding school, right? She was my first serious girlfriend. Why did you break up? That's a strange question. Did you treat her bad? Did you cheat on her? That's a rude question. Let me tell you what Amy told me. She dumped you. You completely unraveled. You stalked her, you threatened her, and you attempted suicide in her bed and were institutionalized. Your wife is missing, and you came all this way to tell me this? Well, I thought there might be another side to this story. Okay, because uh, that's good, because he's possessive of her, um, and not sexually possessive. He's possessive of her as an item. And here's where I think there is the thread that you you could make an argument that this is a feminist film to a large degree. I'm going degree. to in a second. Yes. Well, okay. Um, if I haven't already. Well, maybe I'll uh, I I'll wait or maybe I'll just throw this out yeah. here and then you can I think the cool girl sequence could have been brilliant and is just not integrated into the other things that the movie is doing. That is one instance where I feel them trying to balance that scale, but the movie itself doesn't believe in Hmm. it. Um, And this is, for those who may be listening um, but haven't seen the film yet, I don't know why you would be, but it's a voiceover we get from Pike after she's on the run and she goes on this little tirade about how men have always wanted the cool girl and she tried to be the cool girl. And it it clearly plays into the public persona thing that uh, we've been talking about. But it also, just the form of it, her other voiceovers have come, if I'm remembering correctly, in her diary. And I don't know that this is attributed to anything written. So formally, it's it's dropped in as an anomaly. Um, so that threw me off a little bit. It's something that isn't really returned to. We get hints of it in the you know the Patrick Harris character is where I saw. Okay, I see where they might have wanted this to go. Yes. I just didn't feel like the movie believed it. Oh, see, I believed it. And I believed it specifically because of those scenes with Neil Patrick Harris. That is my biggest piece of evidence in the case for this movie being, if anything, more misandrous than misogynistic. And it's in those scenes. For me, the single most memorable, harrowing, disturbing shots and moments in the film are the Neil Patrick Harris character stroking her hair, caressing her hair, Mm -hmm. trying to calm her down and be sensitive, and then that turning into him 
plucking at the brown strands in her hair because it's not the blonde ideal. Oh, sure. That she's right. always been yeah. and that he wants. And those lines about how she's safe now. Well, she's safe now because yeah. he's never going to let her out of her sights again. <laughs> right. That, for me, that followed through on the promise of the cool girl speech. They don't quite hit those notes, though, with the delicacy that they hit some of the other thematic notes. I mean, they return to that, and we get a lot of gestures like that. He has a few lines that he says right away about it's you not know, a delicate when film. you go shopping and, and that sort of thing. So that was clearly there. That That's definitely an element. I, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the aesthetics or the form of the film when we were mentioning the poster image this came to mind because one thing I appreciated is this goes back to the news reports as well that you talked about the way this movie uses images of others taken by others so often. Oh, yeah. So it's, like you said, the news real footage, but also um, Rosamund Pike smiling in a snapshot someone else took at a party years ago that is then put on a poster that it, Affleck then stands in front of that is then what Fincher is filming. And mm-hmm. so there's just this lovely oh, yeah. layering of public personas. Even her first snapshot, she's posing, right? She's putting on airs. Mm-hmm. So really brilliant use of that throughout the film, how photos are, are used. Also, the incessant flickering flashbulbs of mm-hmm. the paparazzi, a common thread visual motif in movies like this but here it's just used they're almost like a greek chorus because it's so often and it's just this commenting that comes in on the action from the outside like this choir sitting out there just waiting and there's a brilliant shot my favorite shot in the film perhaps is their cat that is that's the most maybe single striking shot in the film just cinematically it's it's gorgeous and also capturing what so much of the movie is about looking out the front right. door the door opens i think it is and then all of these flash bulbs go out and all we have there is the cat basking in its glory right <laughs> yeah I, I think that for me the one scene that if i was going to try to go the other way with this the one scene that has really stuck with me is being problematic in some way is and i'm throwing this out here in this conversation because it's possible I'm missing something, and I hope that a listener can maybe set me straight. But there's a scene later in the film once Affleck's Nick starts to catch on to the fact that he's being framed. Yeah. And he goes and meets with an old boyfriend, played by Scoot McNary. Oh, who yeah. Who tells this tale of how he tried to break up with her, and she staged this elaborate ruse to get him convicted of rape. And only on thinking about it later... Josh, did it hit me that that scene, while maybe making sense in terms of the plot, because at that point, what he's doing really is trying to get some ammunition for his eventual defense, right? And he wants to be able to set some kind of groundwork for the fact that his wife is this conniving woman who can do things like this, is capable of these kinds of designs to hurt men. We know that by now. We know everything she's capable of. And if you had lifted that scene completely out of the movie, it wouldn't actually affect anything that follows. It seems almost like it's there, only to make us hate the Amy character even more, to really find her repugnant. Because it also undermines the fact that what we learn later is Nick is the one who kind of drove her to this. Not just Nick. She's a woman who has her whole life played a role for other people. She's been this amazing Amy character and had to try to live up to that that her parents have put on her and everybody she's ever met has put on her. And so then she marries a guy and she thinks that they at least tacitly agree that they're going to play a certain role. And when he decides he's not going to play that role anymore, 
And I love that moment where she talks later about the fact that what made her so angry was seeing him do that same gesture with the other woman. That act, right. that physical gesture is him not playing the part. That's what drove her to this. And then we go back and hear about this story and have to believe it's true. I think the movie wants us to believe it's true anyway. And if that is true, like I said, it not only just makes us hate her, but it yeah. also undermines the fact that she was driven to this. It suggests that it was always part of her pathology, that she's always been this kind of man-hating woman. Yeah, I, I think it probably does support that the way I read it, the way I watched it. It certainly emboldens this idea that she's deranged and he's made some bad decisions. Right. Right. <laughs> and so that's not quite uh, an equal equation either. Um, can I just pause to say how great Scoot McNary has been in so many films I know. lately? Just these little parts. Yeah. I saw him again and, and made me think he was in The Rover. He was in Frank's supporting part. What else? Uh, the one that I remembered, I think, was, this is going back a little bit now, but Killing Them Softly. Yeah. He's turned into this really great one-scene actor. Yeah. Because um, I bought that scene, and I think his character is... Standing apart in that, I'd have to watch it again more closely now that you've brought this up, but my memory is that he's not maybe one of these men who tried to possess her. He seems like this guy who was just another guy yeah. who ran into this crazy woman. Right. Um, that's, so that's what I'm saying. Why? That's how I read it. I don't it know too. how it serves the film as a whole. Well, and in fact, it maybe, but maybe undercuts unconsciously it. it played into my feeling of yeah. this vibe no, of, you know, it, 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 it could have worked that way. It very well could have. But this question, and I have not read much out there. I read the Vulture piece, and we'll link to it in the show notes because I didn't want to sit here and rail against people who are claiming the film to be sexist if I hadn't actually read any of the arguments yeah. about it being sexist. And I read this Vulture piece that I was relieved to see actually really makes more of a case that it's not sexist, not the book or the movie, but still makes a few claims here and there. And its biggest charge against the film and this dances around something you were talking about a little bit in terms of its perspective, is that the movie kind of has to make a choice to follow Ben Affleck for most of the film because it's going to be a reveal later about Amy. Right. And what she argues is the book does allow it to be more equal because the book can glance mm -hmm. back and forth between these two points of views and get inside their heads. The movie can't get inside Amy's head and be inside Ben Affleck's head. Or it tries. I mean, it, it certainly mixes it in this hypnotic, spellbinding way, I felt. But it can't give you a clear perspective from each of them. And so it can't really balance out the perspectives. I thought that was actually pretty fair. What I am afraid of, and maybe this is a straw man, maybe this isn't happening, but I'm afraid of people actually sitting there like the people at home watching Nancy Grace in this movie. The people watching the Missy Pyle character going, oh, but he smiled at that woman. Oh, but he said this about his wife. So he's really a good guy. Oh, now I learned this. No, he's a terrible guy. You're sort of scorecarding the sure, good and sure. the bad. I think that's really troubling, but you can do that same thing with characters in a movie and sit there and go, well, you know, she's this deranged woman and she's clearly crazy and the movie hates her. And so this movie hates women. And then you're kind of overlooking the fact that, well, the two quote unquote best characters in the film, like the two most good-hearted, the two people that you'd actually want to sit down for a drink with, are both women, right? The detective. And the sister. And the sister. Yeah. So Great character. where does that balance out? Why don't we factor that in as much as we factor in the reprehensible nature of the Amy character? I think those are two instances where the movie is very sure to make a nod in that direction. I don't know that the movie believes in them entirely. <laughs> 
unbelievable. <laughs> I, the movie gives it to you and you question it. Adam, it just, I know the movie gives it to me and I think that's the movie's intent. It's just for me at the end. I wanted to despise them both. I felt like the movie wanted me to despise them both. Okay. I don't think the movie itself despised them both. Well, it provoked that reaction in me. That is Gone Girl, which we went very long on, and we look forward to getting your feedback because I still feel like we left a lot on the table there. Again, share your thoughts with us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Amy, who are you? A, I'm an award-winning scrimshander. B, I'm a moderately influential warlord. Hmm. C, I write personality quizzes for magazines. Okay. Well, your hands are far too delicate for real scrimshaw work. And I happen to be a charter subscriber to Middling Warlord Weekly, so I recognize you. I'm gonna go with C. And you? Who are you? I'm the guy to save you from all this awesomeness. <laughs> <laughs> 